Hi, and welcome to the Good Health Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Good, a registered nutritional therapy practitioner and functional medicine practitioner. Join me as we explore thyroid, brain, and fatigue conditions with positivity. From Hashimoto's to multiple sclerosis, chronic fatigue to adrenal dysfunction, I've got you covered. With expert advice and tips to help you take action now and inspiring real patient stories from successful individuals who refuse to let their health hold them back. Start your journey to good health today. And don't forget to come and join the conversation on Instagram at good underscore health, that's G-O-O-D-E. Or visit my website at nicolegoodhealth.com to find out more. Today, I'm really excited to have welcomed Anthony Haynes onto the Good Health Podcast. Anthony has been in private practice for over 32 years and is one of the most experienced registered nutritional therapists in the UK. He's one of the first practitioners to implement the principles of functional medicine in the UK since 1992. Anthony has seen over 19,000 clients and has learned much from the experiences. Each person is unique and has taught Anthony that principles are what counts, not protocols. In addition to learning from his clients, Anthony has also researched and then presented on multiple different subjects over the 32 years that he's been teaching. Over the past 14 years, Anthony has focused much clinical and research time to addressing chronic hidden viral infections, which is what we're going to be discussing today, and in particular, their relevance to contributing to autoimmune conditions. He's met hundreds of clients with viral infections that have been identified with lab tests. He has witnessed improvements in the vast majority of clients after recommending a variety of remedies and natural substances to help his clients' immune systems to function more capably versus the viruses. Anthony is also a successful award-winning author of two books on nutrition, The Insulin Factor and The Food Intolerance Bible. And he has appeared on television and radio. In March 2011, Anthony was awarded the prestigious Can Magazine Award for Outstanding Practice for his many years of educating, inspiring, motivating, and helping practitioners and patients. Let's jump straight into this conversation on autoimmune conditions, the immune system, and chronic viral infections. Okay, Anthony, welcome very much to the Good Health Podcast. It's great to have you here today. Thanks, Nicole. It's great to be here. Yeah, so I... I always do a little bit of prep when I'm doing these guest episodes and, you know, sort of research the guests a little bit more detail, um, think about topics that we can discuss and things like that. And I usually pretty quickly get, if I don't already know it already, I get pretty quickly get to one thing that I, I want to discuss with somebody. But here's the thing with you, and it's a really, it's a good thing, so don't worry. There is so much that we could talk about. There's so many different topics that you are so knowledgeable on. I've, I've seen you at many conferences, um, you know, heard you speak before, um, I've followed you for a long time. And I can honestly say that there are so many areas that we could we could dive into from, from your experience. And I'm really, really looking forward to this conversation. But the thing that I've picked up as the thing we want to sort of dive into today is the infections and autoimmune disease. Because I heard you speak on this recently and was just fascinated by your knowledge in it and the concepts that you came up with. So as we've seen from the introduction that I've done, you've done so much in your career, but I'd like to just sort of start with for the listeners really, is how did you originally get into this field, into mm. the work of you know, nutrition, functional medicine? Because you were doing functional medicine, particularly in the UK, way before it was a thing. It still feels like it's becoming a thing now. It doesn't feel like mm. it's quite there, but, but you got into this so long ago. So what was that journey? How did you get into the field and, and find this area? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, really, I, I, I was taken back with, I was having lunch with a friend um, who I used to play sport with and uh, school. And he said, in 1980, when we were 15, you said, what food is going to best nourish us for peak performance? 
1980. Now, wow. at the time, I think the conclusion we reached was very naive. I think it was. That was the time microwaves were just becoming available. And we were so busy, we didn't have time to bake anything. So I think it was a potato microwaved um, that would give us the carbohydrate energy. We thought carbohydrates energy. So it's very naive, 15-year-old certainly, but it was something we did inquire about. So, and he reminded me of that the other day. It said, well, actually, I can pinpoint a moment in time where I had a conversation with somebody about nutrition way before the word nutrition was ever known or nutritionists didn't exist. So that's uh, when I first got into to health and nutrition. I made lots and lots of mistakes. And I think having baked potatoes too often is, is not a good idea. If you've seen the glycemic index of a cooked baked potato, it's about 100. So it's <laughs> not necessarily, but it could be very good for, for boys running around playing multi-sports all day. And then I, um, I became ever more interested. I read whatever magazines were available, I read them. And then I, and I was training with the army. Um, and then I got so much into health and realized that, that in training in the army, I thought, I thought it'd be good. It, it's not healthy at all. And so I actually chose to leave the, 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 the short service commission that I was engaged with and left there in 1988 to be a nutritionist. And it took me a couple of years to find the Institute for Optimum Nutrition, where I did study from 1990, graduated in 92. I began teaching in 91. So I was teaching while I was a student. And then I did the, fourth, the third year with Kate Neal and... Um, uh, who's, who's set up CNELM, so hats off to her, and others as well. And so I became friends with Patrick Holford as well. It came from an, a sports performance position rather than, oh, I'm unwell, I've got to find a route forward, which I've met many, many of my clients have been nutritionists. And it's like, well, the reason I'm here is because the reason I'm functioning is because I was so unwell. I found nutrition, I so loved it that I thought I'd study. And that's, that's quite a, a common theme. For me, it was more sports related. And so it, it didn't really relate to a wide array of uh, conditions that, of course, I've, I've become more familiar with. And really, it, it's, been a, it's been a journey. I mean, I, someone asked me, you know, I'm 58 now, and, you know, am I going to retire? Um, that's never crossed my mind. Is, no. and I'm always learning. There's so much to learn and also lots that I've unlearned as well. So although I've actually studied for maybe 75,000 hours of nutrition, there's so much that I've actually thought that I knew was true. And again, again my thing is that Mark Twain's uh, fantastic quote is, it's the things you think you know for sure that just ain't so. I mean, yeah. I love that one because it does, but it keeps you humble. It keeps you realizing, well, as you know, if I think I know this for sure, maybe I'll dig into it and see there's a, a, different, a different aspect to it. And as the years have, have gone by, um, actually, we started effectively putting into practice the, the principles of functional medicine, which, which I liken in a way to naturopathy with, with biochemistry because it, it is that sort of perspective, holistic perspective, uh, about 1994. And um, first met Jeff Bland that year, I think, 1994, uh, when he, he was one of the co-founders of the Institute of Functional Medicine at the Bastyr College. He spoke with polysyllabic speed faster than I speak um, in words that I'd never heard before. And it was like, it was sort of reassuringly technical, but boy, like, did I understand it? I'm not sure I did to be honest. So that's where that, that sort of introduction to the Institute of Functional Medicine uh, came from. And then um, we took ourselves off the night from 1997 and I've been to about 21 annual conferences and, and, and engaged the courses. And as you may know, co-founded Neutralink with Michael Ash. And then we've, we've become the hosts for the Institute of Functional Medicine training in, in Europe. It really has been a it feels like it's still new. I mean, you mentioned, you know, yeah. sort of, yeah, functional medicine being new. It feels like I'm just, it feels like I'm just getting started. It might sound crazy and maybe if any practitioners with any years behind under your belt, you might feel the same, well, I'm just getting started. Or gosh, well, Anthony's been practicing for 33 years now. I'm way behind. I never, I never sort of get there. Well, actually, I still feel that actually remarkably the same. I'm still getting started. It's, there's so much to it. There's so much to learn. Yeah. But isn't that what makes it interesting is I think yes. as a job is that it's, 
you can never know everything. There's always some new research coming out. There's this thing, like you said, things change, things we yes. used to think. Right? You know, that, that's what I think makes it so fascinating and so interesting. And then the, I, agree, I agree with you. And so the, the notion that I'm, no, no, it's just so, it is so fantastically relevant. And I still get the same joy when a client has improvements as I did back in 1992 or 91 when I was seeing my, as a student, I was helping one of my, the, the men in my village, the father in my village, I think he gave me a check for £75 the year I graduated, which is so kind of me because I helped him for no charge as a student and helped his gout improve for, however, I think probably a low purine diet and taking um, cherry extract, I think was still the thing then. It is a remarkable journey. I actually start, if I can share this with you as a tip, it's, it's, it has crossed my mind more recently. And there are certain things that, that over the years is that uh, I basically, I, I start with every client with a place of I don't know what's going on. Yeah. And I find that such a useful thing. It may be very obvious to say, but uh, maybe maybe some of us have that thought. Well, anyway, I just don't know what's going on. But I deliberately, if I have a thought about, oh, I know what's going on here, I said, no, 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 no. it's just wait. Gather the data, you know, put it together in, in a pattern recognition method. And then I, do, I just don't know what's going on. I much rather start from I don't know to then gather and get some more knowledge as opposed to thinking I know something that leads me down the wrong path. And I think that's the problem with protocols as well. Protocols yeah. give you a sense that, uh, well, here's the shoe. Let's fit it on your foot, type thing, and then so sort of anti-protocols. But protocols are useful. Having said that, to look at lists of things to choose from for the individual, as opposed to saying let's fit that shoe. I think a shoe on your foot would be good, but maybe it's not this particular shoe. Yeah, and it might be that you have a, you know, I, I mean, I'm sure we'll get to sort of some of the things that you can do for for some of the things that we talk about, and there are those there are those things. But it's, I think it's taking a protocol for for sort of want of a better word, and then. And then personalizing it to yes. each person, yeah. isn't it? It's making sure if you if you have that thing that is, well, I often do this. Mm. It's but actually checking is this is this a thing you need to do with that individual? And and I think that's that's what makes functional medicine so so great. Absolutely, and there's, there's so many in depth. I mean, also there's a challenge with testing too. Testing is expensive, as as are supplements. So many things in life now are, are more expensive. But the um, tests, if you have a test for something and you have a, an imbalance. Then if you're the client and I'm the practitioner, we say, well, we both want to correct that imbalance because we've got it on a piece of paper. But actually, maybe the test wasn't the best test to do. And maybe that's literally, it's it's over here. If I liken it perhaps to an archery board and there's a bullseye and then there's other rings around it. Well, it's all very well hitting the target, but yeah. I'd like to hit the bullseye, which is why I've said before. And, and so if you have a test and it's actually a test in an outer ring and you think it's the most appropriate test, but actually it's not, you could then be really just really not scoring many points if you follow the analogy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, today we're going to, I've said, you know, we're going to dig into that sort of autoimmune disease. I work with people with autoimmune disease. So a lot of my listeners have one or another of them or, or more than one yes, as the case yes. may be. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, the first thing with autoimmune disease that I think is an issue, and it's a question that I have on my intake form, is for people to write down their diagnoses. And then later on on the form, I actually have a box that they can tick that says, do you have an autoimmune disease? The reason I ask that is because I can't tell you how many times someone will write a diagnosis in the first part that is an autoimmune disease, and then they won't tick the box for autoimmunity. And it's not an error. They genuinely don't realize that they've the illness that they mm. have got is autoimmune. And it's a problem. That I, and it's the reason that I have the box, because I want to understand, does this person realize that there's these autoimmune processes going on? Why do you think that that is? Why do you think that this sort of, this picture of autoimmunity kind of gets missed and people don't realize that that's what they've got? Well, I think first of all, uh, it is a good question, having had probably thousands of clients with autoimmunity and it is ever growing. And I didn't have so much confidence in autoimmunity because it felt like it was a separate 
phenomenon, which is I think what maybe what what clients' patients think themselves. But if it goes, it got you know you got rheumatoid arthritis. So that's it. They don't. But the, the I believe the consultant, and the doctors are simply not saying, "Did you know?" Or by the way, this is. So they're not being told by the man in the white coat, the diagnosis that this, by the way, the rheumatoid arthritis is an autoimmune condition. Mm. Um, it's basically it's RH, it's rheumatoid arthritis, it's arthritis. So it's arthritis, and it's it's basically you know that's that's what's fallen on my head from the sky. Can't possibly think how that happened. And and also there are ever increasing number. How many people with heart disease? are told that it's an autoimmune condition. And that, that's a more extreme example because rheumatoid arthritis and multiple sclerosis and psoriasis, well, they're autoimmune conditions. And so is Hashimoto is the most common one. And maybe people will realize that. I think they're just given the label, but they're not then given the next byline, which is, by the way, this is an autoimmune condition. And also then they, of course, they have no idea that in fact there is some standard phenomenon that might be linking to food sensitivity, leaky gut, you know, stress, toxins, and infections, which we'll talk about. Yeah. So I think I think it's the fact that actually I think I think it's a reflection from the top down. I don't believe the people who are making the diagnosis are actually emphasizing enough because for them, whether you've got a um, non-communicable disease or a, you know or a degenerative disease, they 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 don't make a distinction for their patients. It's just it's it's, it's conditions of A to Z diagnosis. That's what I've got. They don't separate them out into the, the the nature of what they are. Yeah, and I, and it is it is a problem, and and there are there are reasons why people need to know that it is auto you know it is autoimmune. It is that is important. We know from autoimmune diseases that they're rapidly growing, and it's a you know it's a yep. big problem. There's, there's no doubt about this now. There are you know there's more and more illnesses that are being categorised as autoimmune to start with. Yes, that's, that's sort of the first such, thing. such as such as heart disease. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, which you know was is not one that we would have ever sort of mm. well most people wouldn't have thought was categorized as, as sort of autoimmune. So there's more and more being categorized. The incidence is growing as well. I was reading a paper recently from University of Oxford who was saying it's it's around one in 10. And I think that's a figure that's probably been floated pretty regularly in, in sort of different papers and things like that. Yeah. Conditions like Hashimoto's, I've read, you know, sort of between nine and 12% a year, it's growing. So, I mean, these are yeah. they're really high... Yeah. This is not just a sort of small increase. This is this is a big problem. And yes. And a lot of those figures also, the other thing I think is that those are just the people who are getting a diagnosis and are at that stage. But we've got a whole wealth of people who are in that sort of stage prior to diagnosis where they've got symptoms, they have got sort of those autoimmune processes going on, but they're not necessarily ticking those boxes to get a diagnosis. Are you familiar with the US Army's review study on the blood samples they had frozen from the past? No. Okay, so I wish I could quote it, but it's something I've actually heard in a lecture as opposed to seeing written down and be able to quote. So the army conducted a survey. They said they had individuals with autoimmune conditions. They looked then, then because they're taking blood from their from the, the troops, okay, giving blood, right, yes, sir, give blood, store it, freeze it. They went back in time to see, this is actually shared by Tom O'Brien. You might know Tom O'Brien. Yeah, I know Tom um, O'Brien, yeah. Uh, he's he's a, a friend of mine as well. And they went back to see, well, when were the antibodies present? Well, it's a pretty good idea, wow. right? Wow. And they went okay. back. And so you, you're actually right. So the symptoms and the antibodies were present before the symptoms yeah. began. Perhaps it's rather obvious. And they went back and it was it was at least six years before the symptoms occurred. Antibodies started to form. Now, if, if you measure antibodies in the blood, there's lots and lots of different antibodies. But that was fascinating because uh, you either do it from doctors the physicians sort of study or the Framingham study or the nurses study the big studies you've got thousands and thousands of people who are accessible to, to for blood draws uh, and the army is another one so they um they, yeah six years before they found raised antibodies so they, they, the condition began six years before the symptoms began and they might have had symptoms for years before the diagnosis was actually made so really really interesting yeah I, I've heard um 
Dr. Karazian talk about this as mm. well a lot. I think he said sort of, you know, it could be up to 10 years. And yes. that, you know, but it is, it's amazing how you can have those antibodies and then you move into this sort of silent autoimmunity, then you become symptomatic before you kind of get to the autoimmune disease. And obviously in the silent, a lot of people don't know there's anything wrong with them, so they won't be getting testing done at, at that oh, point. And why would you? And that's why that's why that sort of testing yeah. that they've done is, is the only way you can really find that information it's out. so interesting, yeah. yeah. And that was the, as far as I know, that was the average. It doesn't mean average. to say that some people could, could have been 12 years, some people could have been two years. So, you know. Yeah. Got, you know, we've got this bank of people who are not yet diagnosed. And the figures that we're talking about are the, you know, the diagnosed people, the people who have reached that. And I think with diagnoses as well, it is a bit of a case where you have to fit into a box to get the diagnosis within, within the sort of system mm. that we have. And, and it can take a while. I mean, I mean it, took, it took me 15 years to get a diagnosis. So I'm, I'm sort of well aware of this, <laughs> this picture. Yeah. What do you think the reasons are behind this rapid increase in the autoimmunity? Yeah, um, I think the burden of toxins in the world so very Pharisee, massive differences in opinions from toxicology assessments from 80,000 to 200,000 toxins. Obviously, that's a massive difference, but basically tens of thousands of toxins. And, and, and Pharisee on the list, there are 6,000 categorical poisons of those. And what's interesting is that a lot of those are invisible and odorless. So if you ask somebody, hmm, so what would you reckon you might, where have I got this pesticide from or something? So, well, well or, or this particular plastic um, endocrine disrupting chemical, which is in there, God, right? so I don't know. I, I you know, I, I can't be true. I don't know. That, that test is wrong because I couldn't possibly. And then, because well, they're odorless and invisible. So you never know if you're exposed. And also, you, you weren't keeping in touch with all the other people in that vicinity where they sprayed that stuff. You weren't keeping in touch with everybody to see how their health was to know that they might be having challenges too. Or maybe your genetic disposition for detoxification might be impaired. So you had a worse problem than perhaps your direct neighbor if you're living you know, in the same place for a certain period of time. I think toxins and modern living with stress, I think the stress of life for Hans Selyer, describing the stress of life, I think the, um, the, the notion that modern living is very different. Now, I had the pleasure of talking to my grandfather who happened to be 106 when he died. So... He was an How? old person, born in 1905. So talking to him, and I wish, of course, you always wish this when people have passed away and your family, we should have these conversations, but conversation about what he did and his life. So basically, always finish work at 5.30. The bell rang and you were told to leave the office. That's it. You yeah. can't You can't stay on. There's no opportunity for overtime. That, that's it. You go. And then, so it was all, so it was very much more balanced life. And the things they didn't, they didn't, no screens, didn't stay inside. He went on the train to Newton Abbott, um, which actually happens to be where Neutralink is. And then he got the train to Buckfastley. And then they walked here and they spent the whole day. It was almost like the railway children kind of image of, of basically just being outdoors, et cetera. Now, the Industrial Revolution did mean that London was smogged at that time. He did tell me that, that he went to train in London where he didn't see daylight for the whole day. It really was oh. smog on the train from Reading to London, smog. So they had, they had particulate matter, which would certainly be a negative for the respiratory conditions in particular. The overall overall nature of it, the stress, and also they didn't wear wristwatches. And so I think time. And so I've, I've chosen since actually the first lockdown, 20, 20, not to wear a watch because I'm, I'm here. I can see the clock. I can see it. So I don't have to, I have to, and I think not wearing a watch has less stress for me. So I think time, time pressure, expectations and filling the day with things. It's not allowing, I think not allowing our children to get bored for one minute to have creative thought. So I think overall sympathetic on, if I call it that, sympathetic yeah. stress on today compared to 50 compared to 100 years ago, huge difference plus the toxins. Now, you may be familiar with this expression, you know, stress stops detox. 
<laughs> and so, and then it's detox or die is the next yeah. one. But so if, if we've got more sympathetic on, we've got more inhibition of our detoxification pathway, it's meaning that whatever toxins are present are all the more likely to have a negative impact. And yeah. part of the sympathetic on, you know, with looking at time rush, time rush is a significant stress for people. Uh, and maybe it's less at home. And I know some people did very well lockdown because they weren't in that time rush. They were kind of like, they didn't have that. And that was a benefit for lots of people. I think with the sympathetic on, that also suppresses immunity. So sympathetic on suppressed immunity, it suppresses detoxification, I think, suppress immunity and decreased capacity to detoxify the increased burden of toxins, quite apart from the fact that there's an increased burden of toxins. And with the increased burden of toxins, you may or may not have heard this or be aware of this, and you may be very aware of it, is that there is a strong association with toxins and viruses. So toxins appear to disable the capacity of the immune system to handle viruses, which are short you know, chains of, of peptides. And so I think the two go together. When I find someone with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, I think every human being's got a degree of that, to be honest. I don't know, we haven't talked about that, but I actually think that everyone's got a degree of PTSD. It's just a question of where on the spectrum they are and how small and big are the letters, really. But um, stress stops detox. So hmm, everyone with PTSD, therefore, is a candidate for having an excess burden of toxins, but also viruses. It was actually my meeting with um, Professor Alan Ebring. I don't know if you've heard me share this before, but he's a professor of molecular science at King's College. So it's actually from the Harley Street practice I was in. He was probably about a mile as the crow flies from where I was working. I met him in Seattle a long way away. And um, he's a very gracious man. And he was describing the nature of how infections contribute to autoimmunity. And it was completely new to me in 2010. I just didn't, I just had no inkling of it. So I was so grateful I was at that particular Institute of Functional Medicine annual conference. I had a chat with him there briefly. Very gracious man. And he shared that he'd been sharing the molecular information about the nature of how infections can contribute to autoimmunity for 30 years. Yeah, oh. which, which I know I, I just hadn't looked, you know, you know, search terms are key. And I'm sure you've done the same thing. If you do the wrong search, you won't find the information. If you don't look, it's a bit like your description of spitting into the box to get the diagnosis, unless you actually look for that particular thing, you won't find it. He described that he's been teaching rheumatologists, in particular rheumatologists, because his, his, his work was to do rheumatology and also autoimmune neurological conditions at King's College with the team Rashid and Wilson. And so I've actually followed their work as well. And he's retired now. Not one single consultant that he lectured to, presented to. So here's a PhD professor of immunology talking to people about molecular sequences and how infections contribute to autoimmunity. Not one single consultant over those years changed anything they were doing to treat their patients on the basis of the information he shared. Now, he wasn't, I, I'd have been a bit more about that. I'd have given it a bit of, um, a bit of bitterness, perhaps, and, and, and a bit of a critical thing, and maybe being a bit sarcastic in the presentation. He's so gracious. He just literally just simply described it and didn't seem to have a um, be upset by that, thankfully for him. And it was uh, basically, and he said, and we, so we asked him why. I said, why don't you think individuals are taking on this information from your team where it's clearly shown that antibodies to certain bacteria are strongly associated with conditions? And he said, well, when you're threatening their salary, no one's going to change anything. And the perception yeah. is that when you, if consultants were to address the underlying issues of these infectious agents, uh, whether that was possible or not, um, they wouldn't have any more patients. Yeah. So they didn't do anything. So they followed, they followed the standard medical practice of, of immune suppressant drugs and biologics and all those things. So it's Unbelievable, like, Unbelievable, isn't it? Okay. So, um, and I had, he had the grace. I, had the, I, I sent him an email uh, when I got back and um, I got a phone call because my phone call was on my email. Uh, he phoned me up. Oh. He actually phoned me up. So I thought, I, I, I felt blessed. That was one of those moments in life thinking, 
you know, I, I met Jeff Bland very much and he knows my name. So it's sort of first name term. So that's sort of one thing. And, and then teaching with Ari Vajdani is another that's sort of definite marker in my, my life of humility and, and, and appreciation. And uh, he phoned me up and we had a chat. I said to him, well, what about the consideration of giving antibiotics to inhibit this bacteria that contributes to rheumatoid arthritis? He said, exactly that. He said, yes, that is absolutely what you do, which is why the fear of the consultants was rheumatology. If we give antibiotics to clients to inhibit Proteus mirabilis, maybe they'll be cured of rheumatoid arthritis and we won't have any clients. We won't have any patients and therefore we won't have a career. I won't be able to continue to send our children to private school, sort of thing. I mean, no. I now, as, at the same time, if someone were to threaten my salary and my income, of course, it would concern me. But of course, it's very short-sighted because, of course, you could, you could, you could set yourself up as, uh, you know, addressing and then put the word out, especially with the internet now. Just absolutely fascinating. So he gave his presentation and I was in Seattle. I came back, my very, very first client, and this is, this, this is the law of the universe, which I'm sure you can connect to, was an RA patient, Hampton man that affects women more than, more than men. And he was the uncle of uh, a, a lady that I'd seen and helped with another condition. So it wasn't, it wasn't so random, but it was the very first client I had back. Now I had the eBringer papers, um, and this is in 2010. So I had a photocopier and I photocopied the papers and I said, look, there was no test for Proteus mirabilis, this bacteria um, that's present in everyone's gut to some degree, and uh, it's the amount that, that matters. But, and this chap was an engineer. He didn't want to take medications, and that's why he came to see me. He didn't want to take the medical route. And she said, well, I, I gave him the papers. I explained to him, and I said, you know, we don't know if he'd got this, but it, it's maybe worth a shot. And he said, I'll, I'll do it. So I recommended the ADP oregano extract from Biotics Research, which is a sustained release emulsified form of oregano, unlike any other form you'll find, that reaches the parts that other beers can't reach. Uh, effectively, it's also a biofilm inhibitor, which I didn't really appreciate so much then. And um, he basically is free of RA. Amazing, isn't it? It's unbelievable. In six months. And that is a, that is a great supplement as well. It's one I use, and it's uh, it's it's the, definitely the best of those sort of those ones. But it's just, it's just amazing how there can be this research out there that is essentially ignored. It is. It's it's, it's sort of it's molecular medical research, but it's nothing to do with how you would treat anybody. It's not any nice recommendations, mm. et cetera, et cetera. So in fact, for me, in terms of it, it might have gone. There might be. There may be other occasions that I missed in life where I've heard an amazing presentation, but then it's not manifest in my clinical practice. So I've sort of like intellectually parked it and not engaged in with clinical practice. So that, that was a, a real fortune for me because then it's like, gosh, that really did work. And he went to see the consultant and I've shared this story before because he was very interested. And the, the consultant's a brilliant consultant who diagnosed him. He's a professor of rheumatology and uh, he's the professor who remembers people's um, hands and feet rather than their faces, so, uh, the names. So he just, he can just do it. And he grabbed his hand, grabbed his hand, grabbed, grabbed his elbows and knees and feet and he said, you don't have rheumatoid arthritis. And he said, so my client said, that's interesting because the person who diagnosed me said I'd have rheumatoid for the rest of my life. And he said, uh, he said, well, well, that was a, bl a blooming idiot. He must have said that, said the, said the consultant. Uh, and then he said, it was you, sir. <laughs> and, and, and the consultant ushered physically my client out of the room. Yeah. And then my client got a letter from him uh, uh, two weeks later saying that rheumatoid arthritis can achieve spontaneous remission. Unbelievable, isn't it? That's kind of an extreme story, but I've heard some stories kind of like it. So, so then, of course, I was all the more interested in Alan Ebring's work and then the association between bugs. And so, I first that's when I, I met Armin Labs and I looked at, at uh, whatever labs were available to assess. And Armin Labs were one that was available at the time for assessing antibodies to viruses in Germany. Then I discovered HHV6 very quickly on. And then I spoke to Ari Vojtani. I met him at the next year's conference. And I said, Hello, Ari, get introductions and pleasantries. 
HHV6, he said, look at my website, the Immuno Science Labs, HHV6 is likely to be a major contributor to autoimmune conditions. So I've been finding that with so many people with autoimmune conditions. Anyway, so it, it's, it's, been a, it's been a journey since then, of course, so then primed for, for COVID about what to do for viruses. But viruses contributed, but also bacteria do too. And I had the pleasure also of meeting Garth Nicholson, PhD, a Nobel Prize nominee, and uh, one of the co-authors of the Singer Nicholson Fluid Mosaic of Cell Membrane activity, which is 50 years old and it's stunning. And he's, so meeting Garth Nicholson at a conference, I think it may be in the very same one, actually. I actually had the opportunity of having breakfast with him because I'm, I'm like that. I said, do you mind if I have breakfast with you? And so we had breakfast with him. And I mean, he is a legend and, and he's also found similar things. He's found the presence of bugs present in those with MS in particular he was looking at. So if we identify those bugs and we, inhi we inhibit them, then the body can stop making antibodies to parts of the body that it was making antibodies to you can help to mitigate and possibly even alter the, the case. And then I had a lady with, who's now become a kinesiologist practitioner, who knows if she's listening today, who confirmed had six um, lesions in her brain on a, on a scan, an MS, and was diagnosed. And, and so that was that. And that's the way it's going to go, you know, take these drugs. And, and then the repeat scan test a year or two later, zero lesions in her brain. And we identified um, chlamydia pneumoniae. Uh, bacteria. So it's, it's chlamydia is often associated with the, the sexually transmitted disease, but it's, that's trachomatis, yeah. as you know, the, the pneumonia. So CP, so I refer to it to my clients as CP, so I don't have you use the word chlamydia in, in, <laughs> yeah. in, in conversation. So it's, it's CP, not CT, uh, which is the trachomatis. And uh, we inhibited the chlamydia pneumonia and she's no longer ha has MS. And she's so impressed that she didn't buy the company like, um, like Gillette, and, um, but she became a practitioner as yeah. a result of that. And uh, so it's just, just fanta fantastic. So we've got a virus there. We've got a small bacteria, chlamydia pneumoniae. And the reason why these things can contribute to autoimmunity, there are, there are three fundamental reasons, as far as I know, that a virus or infection can contribute to an autoimmune condition. One is, is a more straightforward way of understanding it, but it's molecular mimicry. Yep. So this looks like this. And this is the work that Alan Ebringer and Wilson and Rashid were doing. They're looking at the, the series of amino acids in sequence which I know Datis Karajan has looked at as well. Yeah. And, and basically, it's like, it's, it's, in a way, it's very simple for us to understand. It's like letters in the alphabet. And if you've got so many letters, so many words the same um, in that particular protein in your body, as is in the antigen, i.e. the protein of the, the bug that, to which the body's making antibodies, your body goes, okay, I'm going I'm to get rid of you. You're a threat to me. So I'm going to, uh, okay, and it's amazing. I've got six amino acid sequences to look out for. So in my cytocytes, this is the way I liken it, I, I see six sequence there. And the trouble is though, in the, in the heat of battle, inflammation raging, is that, oh, those oh, mistakes are made. There's, there's over there. So in fact, mm -hmm. that's pretty close. I think I'll shoot some bullets in anyway. So it's sort of like, yeah. So it doesn't have to be exact, but you've got a similar sequence of six amino acids in sequence. This is what all it takes for the unbelievably sensitive immune system. I mean, these snipers are very good. So you make antibodies to the tissue. So protein is mirabilis, Six amino acid sequence in there, or even more, or less, depending on, on what on an individual possibly, is the same as certain types of, of collagen in the body. Now, collagen is a long protein, so is gluten, so is casein, so is yeah. so collagen is a very long protein, and within it, you've got also different sequences of amino acids. So, Proteus mirabilis antigen has this six amino acid sequence here, and in the collagen, it's there, so the body attacks collagen. Now, so the logic would be is so if we get rid of the Proteus which is what we do with this, this client. Well, we inhibited it. Who knows, ultimately, we never did a test for it. And Alan Ebringer said, well, the, there was definitely a test for Proteus. But because there was absolutely no demand, the test was, it, it saw its demise. 
So you so see, you can never, you can only get only probably Cyrex Labs is probably the only test uh, place that can test for Proteus really yeah. now, or possibly others too. But if it's in the stool, that's one thing. But you really want to look at antibodies to it rather yeah. than the presence of it, yeah. essentially. And and so and then with chlamydiumoniae, um, the myelin sheath contains, although it's a fatty lipid substance, it has this amino acid sequence that's uh, that's very close to identical to a six amino acid sequence in, in chlamydiumoniae. So the body, so it attacks the myelin sheath. Yeah. And the, the other one, so I know you mentioned that molecular mimicry, the other one is bystander activation as well. Yeah, it's the second of the third one. And the other one is viral persistence. Mm -hmm. So actually you've got a viral persistence, which is basically aggravating it, which in a way for me is more like bystander activation. So HHV6 and EBV, I believe not only they, they play a role in both um, molecular mimicry, potentially certainly driving Hashimoto's in particular, um, but also EBV drives lupus as well. But you've got bystander activation. So, so it does the immune system in and, and alters the sort of TH1, TH2 balance where you're making more antibodies to things and increasing allergies. So we know allergies have increased, food sensitivities have increased and autoimmune conditions have increased. And there is also a theory that, that antibiotic use has actually got a role to play in that. So to, mm. to come in yeah. to the causes, environmental toxins, but also the internal milieu has changed with the inability of our friendly bacteria to do the job of that it should be doing, which is counteracting inflammation amongst other things. Yeah. You've touched there on two, the HHV6 and EBV, which is herpes mm. as well, HHV4, isn't it? So Yes, yeah. I, I see those a lot in, in clinic. It's also yes. my it's also my personal journey. So I so you you may not know this. So I I have MS and my trigger was um EBV. So that was my that's sort of my yeah. backstory to it. How big a problem do you because I'm I'm seeing these a lot. I've actually seen particularly since COVID, mm. I've seen a lot of yes. reactivation. Because this is, I think, the other thing with these viruses, isn't it? Is that you can have the active infection in the body, but you can also have reactivation of them. And I've seen quite a lot of reactivation. How Yes, How big indeed. a problem do you think these viruses are? Because people, if they're not testing, they don't sort of know that oh, it's happening. Yeah, okay. Well, well, first of all, I really wish you well with, with obviously what, what you're faced with. And there, there was a study coming out, I think it was two years ago, I, I heard the study. Again, it was a US Army study, you may be aware of this. They looked at the, identified which of the troops effectively had MS and they tra tracked back and they found that Ipsum bar virus was a significant yeah. factor, but they didn't test for chlamydia or mycoplasma pneumoniae, which is what Garth Nicholson has done. So for me, when you've got one, you tend to have another one. It's a bit like autoimmune conditions. You know, if you've got one condition label, you know, it's probably got one that's quiescent or you've got, you've got yeah. generating um, somewhere else as well. It's quite rare. If, if, you, if you look for them, you, you can always form a sign. Anyone's got one autoimmune condition, they've got another one brewing or another one, um, which which makes sense because the immune system is failing. It's more trigger happy at making these things. So, yeah. And uh, you may or may not also have heard Armin Schwarzbach, maybe you have, describe the 500,000 blood tests they received over a two-year period after COVID started and every single blood sample from across the world, whether people were jabbed or unjabbed or had COVID, we did, they didn't know the history of these people. Every single one had a reactivated virus and EBV was the most common. HHV6 and varicella zoster, I believe, were the, were the top three. Mm. Um, you may have listened to that, that particular podcast. Yeah. So reactivation of viruses, hugely relevant. And now I believe that's part of the drive of autoimmune conditions, which may be a, a slow process rather than the acute issues we've heard about people having you know, more significant negatives from COVID or, or having had the jabs. This is a, a sort of, it's basically initiated an autoimmune profile in, in someone. So I think the reactivity of viruses, hugely relevant. And then I, I would question, let's say for you, I, I wonder, well, 
you know, oh, and maybe you've tested this, and this perhaps is not just an interview for you, but it's uh, I wonder, do you actually have the presence of CP or MP, mycoplasma yeah. pneumonia and CP? And and you've got what else is going on? Because I I found that the clients before we EBV came into light more two years ago, mm-hmm. I found that I was helping clients reduce their MS scenario without addressing EBV. Mm-hmm. So it's the question: Is it more of a you know? But the army study was for years back. Yeah. Um, so I believe it's it's probably a collection of things as well. And also they weren't looking at toxic burden, which is extremely challenging to to test for. Yeah, I think that's the that's the thing, isn't it? A lot of people sort of say to me, or a lot of clients will sort of ask me, so what? They're aware of this root cause thing. I think people are becoming more aware of that. Mm. But they ask the question, so what? What's my root cause? And I'm always like, very unlikely that there's going to be one. We're, we're yes. probably going to find you know, a few different things that are going on as, you know, these sort of root causes and, and things that are driving this. And it's it's about finding each one, building on yeah. that yeah. Um, and improving. And, and for me, I mean, I didn't, I, I didn't go down the medical route. I've never taken the medication. I, haven't, I didn't go down, I mean, I had the scans and things like that, but I didn't go down the, the medical route in terms of, in terms of treatment. I, knew, I, I mean, I'd been 15 years. I'd, it had been a long road. I'd had numerous misdiagnoses, you know, so it was, I was already losing faith, I think, a little bit anyway. Um, but I, you know, I got found functional medicine and that's, that, I'm a bit like you said at the beginning, it's, a lot of us get into this story from um, a health perspective. And for me, that's what it was. I found functional medicine. It helped me. I'm, you know, I have very mild sort of MS now. I occasionally flare up if I get a virus or something like that usually yeah. is, is when I'll have something. Other than that, you know, I'm I'm back living living my life and fantastic. So pleased to hear that. Yeah. And that's Well and, done you. Well done you. And that's all on you and you as opposed to oh God, thank God there's thank God I had the right doctor. <laughs> it is and it is. And it is it's taking control of that journey, I think, isn't it? And deciding and but it's also finding these things and finding functional medicine, which was a huge part of, mm. of, of my journey. And that was what led me to go back and, and retrain. So the different, the other side from you coming at it from that performance side, there is this whole picture of it's not just, it isn't just one thing. It's, it is, it is a bit of a slow journey and it's finding one thing and the next thing and building on that and seeing improvements and. Yeah, absolutely. I've actually got a slide, if I may, I'm just going to uh, find it now if I can, uh, if I can find it I had it up earlier, uh, which actually just highlights. It's a, it's a very simplistic model. I mean, it, it is simplistic, but I think it's a useful thing. And I'm just going to see if I can share it now. If I can uh, find it. Too many things up on my screen. Uh, so autoimmune conditions. So is, there must be a genetic component to it. So a lot of people feel it's just genetic. Okay, yeah. so it's falling away from the sky. It's one of those things. And it's bad luck. Oh, where is me? Oh, thank goodness I've got these, these painkillers. You've got dietary components, so food reactivity, food sensitivity, and we know that gluten is one of the main drivers and casein can be cross-reactivity. And then you've got avenins in oats, which I found to be very common now. Oats in the last five years, I would say I've got, I mean, I have a word, I'm technically celiac, which I didn't appreciate. And then I did a test with, with Tom O'Brien with Sarex um, about six, seven years ago. And it was actually, this is, the, this is a celiac profile, not a gluten sensitivity profile. So dietary components and the leaky gut scenario, toxic chemicals we talked about, and of course there's, there's so many different. Those. They're so difficult to pronounce. I can't even, to write them down would be almost impossible. Um, <laughs> and phthalates is difficult enough, and you've got the gut microbiome, and so hence my conversation about the antibiotics. Since yeah. antibiotics have been introduced, and I've seen a very interesting parallel with the increase in antibiotics, well, increase in antibiotics and the increase of autoimmunity at the same pace, yeah. uh, inhibiting the gut microbiome. And of course, the, the, the term microbiome is now probably a lay term. It's probably moved, you know, it's probably a, 
I don't read the magazines, but it's probably in the magazines that people read. And then you've got the infectious agents. And so and I, I'm just showing you that I found that the toxin metals and toxins and infections go very well together. But the other one that's not on here is stress. I think yeah. the modern living stress, I was describing my grandfather's natural way of life. It was like the leisure hours he had in his life were four hours more a day than mine. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've got no doubt about that. And just, just out in the wild where hopefully it wasn't in, in the fields where they've been spraying things. Just so everyone had organic food isn't a matter of course type of thing, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the, the infections, it introduces this whole other bystander activation and molecular mimicry scenario. I mean, it really does. So it introduces a whole new new area. Now, I think with, with the fear of, of COVID, which is a pervasive fear, and I actually had... Um, I'm very much into energetic things and I, I'm a, I, do, I operate with kinesiology and I'm actually a sound therapist as well. There's, there's all kinds of things you, you find that are effective, not just nutrition, of course, uh, uh, with the journey. Yeah. As some wise man said, and I, I wasn't King Solomon because he, he's long gone, but it was some wise man said recently, the future of medicine is not pills, potions, vitamins, pills, et cetera, it's vibration. Mm-hmm. Everything is frequency. And um, so it, that's interesting in itself. EBV. EBV, I would estimate, is probably one of the most profound negative bugs that contributes to autoimmune necrosis through bystander activation and molecular mimicry. Yeah. There's both strong connection with Hashimoto's and, as we know, with MS in particular. But who knows what else is? Because maybe it hasn't been studied for the other autoimmune conditions. But I think there's a general negative, F. Barbaros, HHV6, which is, uh, again, as human herpes virus 6. Some of them have got names after people who discovered them. I think it was um, Anthony, I think it was Anthony Epstein or Anthony Barr, but they've left out one of the found one of the discoverers of Epstein Barr, they've left out of the name. So some have got names and some have got descriptions of the size of them, like cytomegalovirus, which is another herpes virus. Yeah. So an HSV1, HSV2. So Epstein Barr virus, HHV6, strong drivers for autoimmunity. Then you've got the chlamydia pneumonia, the small bacteria, which is an intracellular bacteria, which is quite hard to get at, and it was originally found in the lung, hence the Latin term, uh, in a genitive case, pneumoniae, which means belonging to the lung or of the lung. And then you've got mycoplasma pneumonia, which is sort of bacteria, sort of cell membrane-free bacteria, also found in high prevalence in MS, cytomegalovirus, another herpes virus. And then you've got helicobacter pylori, which I'm actually presenting a webinar on. First time I've ever given a dedicated webinar to H. pylori. I've talked about it, and I've had some extraordinary cases. It's a, it's a really curious thing, because there are 17 different strains of H. pylori+. Plus. So H. pylori is also a driver, potentially certainly of Hashimoto's, but maybe others as well. That's a bacteria. And then you've got Protus mirabilis, I've mentioned to do with arthritis. There's also Prevotellobacterius with arthritis. And then Klebsiella specifically linked to ankylosing spondylitis, which is again the word okay. from Ebringer. So Ebring was the first person to talk about a low-carbohydrate, low-starch diet. Basically, low-starch diet. Don't feed the Klebsiella with starch because it makes mm-hmm. ankylosing spondylitis worse. So he goes, um, so I had a conversation with, with Alan Ebring about this, but KP, so you need HLA-B27 positive, Mm-hmm. and Klebsiella pneumoniae. And 100% of people with ankylosing spondylitis have those two present. But not everyone who has those two present has ankylosing spondylitis. Like it's a relatively yeah. small percentage. So, so you need those two things to be present. So KP. So, so KP. And that's the case with a lot of these, isn't it? I think just because you have the virus doesn't necessarily mean... It's not like you know everybody with you know, Epstein-Barr or whatever. Not everybody with that virus will end up with you know, MS or... It's, it's, a, it's a small percentage. It's a small percentage. Yeah. And that's why, as you said, looking at the whole, and that's why I've indicated that as you do, you do a test or you get positive, it's not necessarily the thing to focus on. So maybe some clients who, with, with MS so have EBV positive, so you engage in an antiviral program and... But actually, maybe they got CP, chlamydia pneumonia, which is an intracellular bacteria. It's a small one compared to a lot of bacteria, which can be 50 to 100 times larger than a virus. 
So klebsiella pneumoniae, famous for its association really with ankylosing spondylitis. And, and again, I would say hand on heart with my memory being probably less than ideally perfect, but I would say every single client with ankylosing spondylitis has gotten better by addressing not feeding and then killing the klebsiella pneumoniae, quite apart from offering palliative support for reducing inflammation. So what's the next one? Porphyromonas skin gavalis. So oral health. And I know there are more and more sort of webinars and podcasts about oral health and overall yeah. immunity. Porphyromonas skin gavalis can also be a, a, an agent that promotes autoimmunity. Uh, hep C, hepatitis C virus associated with Hashimoto's and, and a variety of other, uh, maybe lupus as well. And then we have this HTLV1 infection, which is less well known because it's complicated in a sense. Human T lymphotropic virus type 1, that's also associated with, with a variety of autoimmune conditions, including Hashimoto's. And then we've got endolomaxana, that's an amoeba. Uh, and that's, that's been shown to cause reactive arthritis as an autoimmune condition. And then we've got down the bottom, Staphylococcus aureus, that's been associated with... Um, skin conditions, including, actually, no, it's associated with sarcoidosis, that one in, in particular. But again, maybe it hasn't been studied in others to discover that that's also involved. So there is no one test, as you, as you probably appreciate very well, there's no one test that's just all these things, although there are profiles that can give an indication of things. What's the next one I've got? Propionobacterium acne is the one that contributes to acne, associated with, that's also associated with sarcoidosis and possibly psoriasis, although the enteroviruses are associated with a range of, of autoimmune conditions. And then what have we got next? We've got, yes, Streptococcus pyogenes, strongly associated with psoriasis. Uh, what I've done here is I, I, to my, although there's a longer list, and I have a longer list, and we can all probably gain access to that longer list of, of uh, what I call bugs with potential, is that the, these are ones that, I've, that are more definitively associated with a specific type of autoimmunity. And then you've got the generalization. So I wonder how many people with autoimmunity actually have an Epstein-Barr virus burden uh, that, that does the immune system in, in a way that then allows the immune system to can, want to make antibodies to, to these things. So I think these are probably the most common. These are the ones I haven't put varicella on. I haven't got Coxsackie virus on. I haven't put HSV1, HSV2. So we can always go on further. But yeah. I think hopefully these are, these are the main ones. Now, of course, there are 87 autoimmune conditions in, and maybe tomorrow it's going to be 90, maybe it's actually 95. And maybe mm. there are 200 in total. That there may be yeah. a lot of conditions that we, that we think are macular degeneration is an association with um, oxida oxidation of the cataract, um, for example, and we need antioxidants for it. Maybe that will turn out to be autoimmune in, in its nature as opposed to purely oxidative stress. I, or maybe oxidative stress is the bigger factor and behind the scenes, there's an autoimmune aspect to it. So we've got things to find out. And that's where someone like Ari Bajdani and looking at antibodies, unless it's searched for, unless you turn over that stone and have a look, we don't know. So there are definitely unknowns. And what I found is that what I've endeavored to do myself, and I would say it's something that I was, I was taught by Trevor Gale, who taught kinesiology to me, with the skill set that, that he taught me, which is basically in 2000, how on earth, would, I mean, imagine someone came along and they were tested positive. Let's, let's just say, imagine you had all these things and you had an antibody. What the heck do I do? Is it important or do I heal, heal my leaky gut and avoid gluten and I'll get better? Um, what do we do? can't change my genes and maybe I should, um, you know, take probiotics and, and remove toxins and maybe that'll be more important than the, these bugs. And so my aim is to, as always to have been, and I can't swear that I've got it right each time, but it seems to work quite well, is to identify exactly what each person needs to address, which is really, it's not, it's not the multi-million dollar answer, but it, it is to me hugely relevant. Um, I have a, many clients have this test. They've got organic acid testing, stool testing, antibody testing, toxin testing, 
And it's like, it's overwhelming for each one. That imbalances and all of them, what do we do? What do we treat? And so my aim has really been from the year 2000 when he introduced this notion of, well, there's always a priority sequence of treatment. And it's something that functional medicine itself doesn't address, although you can't really go wrong by starting with the gut first. And so this notion that we'll start with the gut and then go from there, it makes sense. But sometimes it's not start with the gut. It, it's yeah. something else. And so I liken it to the following. If I may share a, a sort of analogy, which I think all analogies fail because they're always sim- more simplistic than the complexity of the human body. So I liken it to a, like a derelict building that's in, that's in trouble. So imagine you and I, we go into the house. Let's say we're going to somebody else's house, not your house. You go to, you, we go to somebody else's house and actually mm, smell of smoke. I've got smell of smoke. So, so, there's a, so there must be some fire somewhere because there ain't no smoke without fire. And then we, we, we walk through the kitchen and we can see there's a, there's a dripping... There's actually a leaking pipe underneath the kitchen sink. So there's a leak. The, the windows of the house are broken. The curtains are torn. The carpets are ripped up. The floorboards are wonky. You get the idea. So we're talking about uh, uh, someone's body, but in terms of houses, also there's some electric issues and there's some, the, the lights have gone out, etc. So I asked, well, what would you do first? Well, I wouldn't start putting up new curtains and I wouldn't start painting the walls. Yeah. I wouldn't do that. I know it's so obvious, but what's difficult to know is how do you translate that to the evidence you got for a client? And so I'd always put the fire out first, wouldn't you? Yeah. You know, so, so we put the fire out first. So sometimes for people, even if you found these things, you want to stop the immune reactivity of these things and dampen the fire. Otherwise, nothing's going to get better. It put the fire out first. So I, I find that a very useful analogy. I, I think probably I, I find it, like, all, like all things that I know, I got it from someone else. Um, I'm not sure I've had original thought really by itself. It's all learned. And I've had to let go and lose a lot of thoughts I thought were true. I find that I found the analogy so useful because we can find the evidence of this dilapidated house where the, the front gate's swinging and it's broken. We, no one's mown the lawn for a while. The weeds are still there. But what on earth do you do? So don't deal with, I wouldn't put new curtains until you've done the windows. And I wouldn't, do, I wouldn't do the windows and curtains until I've done a lot else in the house. So you might get a cosmetic benefit, you understand, from my analogy. Yeah. Oh, the house looks nicer now. Someone's painted the outside and got curtains up. But actually, on the inside, actually the, the fire's still, still smoldering, smoke's still there, and there's a leak, et cetera, et cetera. So we need electrics. When you fly. So I, I think that analogy, hopefully that's, that's useful. I'll, I'll stop the share there. Just, um, I found that analogy so useful, and it's one that I maybe someone out in functional medicine uh, shared that one with me. Um, but I know they have their own uh, their own matrix, which I'm well familiar with in terms of how to deal with things. But unless you know what to find, as you pointed out, unless you actually find and know what you're dealing with, so it's called targeted nutritional therapy on a functional medicine mm-hmm. basis, how on earth can you possibly get success? So at the same time, um, maybe we all got skills. We've all got fire blankets. We can all put fire blankets on, which is mm-hmm. antioxidants or anti-inflammatory yeah. agents. But then how do you know which, because each different fire might require a different type of either fire extinguisher or fire blanket. So how do you know the inflammation is in this environment or this component or, 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 or part of the body? And that, that again, is, a, is rather boggling. There's so many things. I mean, does everyone need turmeric? And the answer is no. Does everyone need any one particular thing? No, everyone needs something different. So it is extremely challenging. And sometimes, frankly, it is going to be a trial and error. Although the reason for meeting uh, Trevor Gale and, and having him teach me about priorities was to minimize the error. So it's going to be a trial, hopefully with success, uh, at least it make, make some headway. So when it comes to, if you want to test for some of these things, mm. because we know that obviously testing gets expensive for yeah. clients. Um, a lot of these tests are not, are not cheap. Hundreds of pounds, yes. How, yeah. So how do you, how do you approach the the testing aspect? Do you because you know based on sort of what we've said, you could sort of go along the approach of we need to kind of 
test for everything almost, you know. So. Yeah, but, but then how would you make the decision to know what to treat if, if exactly. they're all in balance anyway? How do you make a decision on sort of where to go with that with that sort of testing picture? Yeah, it's a, it is a good question because let's face it, maybe if I have 10 clients with MS, let's choose that subject, and we do the three tests with everyone. So we do a stool test, we do an antibody test, and we do a toxin test, let's say. So we find that the chlamydia ammonia is there, we find there's toxins there. Patrick Kingsley, who's passed away, but he was very much into mercury and MS, and he mm. was involved in teaching me in 1992, 93. Um, mercury, mercury and MS, I mean, that was his, his bag as everyone's got toxic metals. With toxic metals, of course, that, that actually allows viruses to be more likely to be present too. So who knows how many of the people. So he, he helped people uh, adjust their mercury and had success with clients with MS by addressing mercury. That was yeah. his bag. So how do you know which one to do? So this is where I came to in 2000. Um, how on earth do you know what to do? Yeah. When you when you know stuff, and of course I, I know so much more now, but of course the more I know, the more you know you don't know. And so it's like it's just a never-ending <laughs> process. Um, and I do my best to try and understand that the scientific papers that I read in preparation for teaching and so on is I want to get the gist of it. So for me, I'm always listening to because I'm a clinician first, I'm reading the scientific papers with a view to how can I use this information in clinical practice? You know, what, what's the value of it as opposed to writing a thesis on something? Yeah. He trained me in kinesiology and muscle testing. Now I, I did have a bioresonance device for about seven years. Um, is a, it was a QXCI. We also got an Asara machine at home. And I found that was very useful for picking up things. So it's a vibrational method. And the, his machine was originally designed to test astronauts' health when they were in space. So you could use it from afar. So it was a quantum process boggling at the time. And I found that that gave me so much data. It, still didn't, it wasn't able to pinpoint down. So I like the, the wisdom of the higher self of the body. So I would say that I use kinesiology testing. I'm not a qualified kinesiologist. I've just learned muscle testing and it seems to be very effective, but I'm not, not pretending I'm a kinesiologist. So I say I use muscle testing or I use a kinesiological method, but I'm not a kinesiologist. And I found that, and I used not to declare that in such conversations and interviews that I've had over the years, because it, it meant that if the audience isn't able to do or is not a kinesiologist, they can't do it. So it kind of excludes. But I would say that anyone can learn muscle testing. Anybody can learn dowsing. And dowsing and muscle testing, I would say it's absolutely worth pursuing that. As it was, I was fortunate enough to be able to find myself a teacher and I paid him for two weeks straight. So I had, I had five days and five days and two weeks. He taught me how to do muscle testing. And then I had a, on the phone to him a lot after that saying, it's not working, it's not working. He said, Anthony, yeah, practice, practice. So it did, does say practice and confidence. And that, that com has completely changed things. So I don't want to wish to exclude you or anybody else who doesn't do muscle testing, but there is a way because uh, most of the time in the early days, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what percentage is. As the muscle testing gets it right way more often than my 1% my of my conscious brain does. So we all operate from the 1% of our conscious brain, 99% yeah. of the brain's unconscious. So... I, I just recognize that um, the muscle testing basically finds the answer. And to, to give the answer now, with experience, I can now say that, yes, when we're talking about the bugs, is that I have found the bugs to be priorities to come to, 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 come to the quick. And so therefore, I would say that do the test for the, for the bugs, and it may be a very, very good thing to strengthen the immune system to help deal with the bugs. So hence, we're talking about that, that conversation and, and you're aware of the EBV for you. And so it makes sense. So talking to you, it makes sense to you. It doesn't jar. You say, well, that makes sense. So that's why, that's why I've given presentations on autoimmunity and, and, and infections since 26, 2016. I think was the first time I gave a webinar on the subject. And I have many times since. So the, I think the bugs are, are, are super present, but in time, maybe there's a, the toxin burden will be more of a negative factor. And in time, maybe certain types of stress, you pick up stress. So, so I, think, I think weighing up, weighing up, putting everything on the scales, as it were, saying, well, is it stress we need to deal with? Is it gut microbiome? And it's looking at these things. But I have to say, if someone's got gut symptoms, they've got a gut imbalance. So we, maybe we know that. But 
you can't tell from symptoms if someone's got a, a particular type of bug. Yeah, it's just they got a condition. Whereas, let's say they got and they got fatigue and um, leaky gut might be obvious. Uh, food sensitivity as well. Look, you, uh, let's avoid the usual suspects. I mean, we you know one, two, three, four. These are the usual suspects, and you're eating them all the time. So maybe we exclude those. So it's a, it's a really. So we don't have to have tests for everything because the signs and symptoms tell us what's going on. Okay, let's let's change the diet. I mean, the vast majority of people who change their diet have an improvement anyway. Let's improve the gut microbiome. We could do that without testing. We don't yeah. have to necessarily know specifically. So I think in terms of testing, I've, I've tended to err more towards doing the antibody test through blood tests than other tests for autoimmunity because it's like, what, what happens if it was CP and not EBV for you? Yeah. You know, the antiviral approach doesn't necessarily inhibit the intracellular CP. Although I have found um, the, yeah, the ADP oregano, which is not particularly useful as a broad-spectrum antiviral. It is brilliant as, a, as an antibacterial, particularly the ones that are hard to reach. But so because of the emulsified nature of the ADP oregano, where the molecule size is not that size, it's that size, that size gets everywhere. So it's the sustained-release emulsified form which allows it to have the potency of oregano. I mean, if anyone had oregano on their mouth, I mean, it's super pungent. It's like it's like, it's like clove. Yeah. It's just like whoa, and it, and it, it won't get anywhere else. It'll just it'll hit you here. Brilliant for that, but it won't actually work systemically against um, much. So that's where the the, the emulsified form works best. So on the one hand, I've sort of said to you, you if you're already involved in dowsing or kinesiology, then that's like oh, well, I can't do that. What's that, that, that wasn't very useful for me, but, I, but based on experience, I will still say that looking at the antibody testing for bugs, which is part of the conversation today, is probably a very valuable one. Yeah, I would agree. I think it's um, it's probably one of the the most valuable, I think, within within sort of autoimmunity, isn't it? Yeah, so you've come to that conclusion without necessarily muscle testing everyone you've seen and then you've had success. Congratulations to you on that. And again, you know, changing a life is, is a big deal. So congratulations to you on that. Yeah, you've touched on a couple of things. You've mentioned you know, the the ADP oregano and uh, you've mentioned a couple of things. But if somebody, if we do this testing, somebody's got these antibodies, it comes back, we're looking at th- that it is this viral or bacteria, whichever it might be. What are the sort of, you know, what are the, and I know we're not talking protocols here, but what are the sort of diet, lifestyle, you know, nutraceutical, what are those things that you would be then considering or looking at in that person? So we start with diet. I would say uh, I... People ask me, well, do you, do you write a diet menu? Now, having done that in the past, it can take me a week to type it up. It's like, it's extremely <laughs> onerous. It's like, oh yeah, I'll do that for you. It's like, oh my goodness me. So I start, which I think is very appropriate. I think it's, it's practical as well, with wherever someone's at. So yeah. wherever someone's at, I start with their existing diet and go on that as opposed to, hey, by the way, here's a diet from America, which includes the words um, eggplant, which you can't understand anyway. So it's uh, <laughs> so I start with wherever someone's at and we ident- I would identify the usual suspects. So, I would estimate that the vast majority, I'm not saying everyone, because there's, when there's a law, the law is to be broken. Virtually everyone needs to be gluten-free and virtually everyone needs to be casein-free. So it's, so it's standard nutritional recommendations. And I've seen spoofs from various comedians about what nutritionists do. And it's very funny because it is absolutely true. It's what we all say. But of course, there's a truth to it. So like with cliches, cliches are true. And then there's, um, what's number three on the list? Eggs. Eggs are three on the list. Um, food sensitivity panels, and then you've got yeast, and then you've got almonds, and you've got um, you know kidney beans. They come up a lot. Peas come up a lot as well. So I would look for the usual suspects. So the usual suspects and say, well, how much of your diet is coming from those foods? And potentially avoiding grains too, because it can be cross-reactivity. So I'd include oats, even if they're gluten-free. So it'd be gluten-free, oat-free, and let, have less grains. So it's more of the paleo style, hence the paleo autoimmunity movement that's, that's mm-hmm. now existing. And so I would clean up their diet. And some people would like to engage, well, I wonder what that difference that will make to me. 
So we say, well, let's do that for a month. Um, but to be honest, I want to get them to the, the end result quicker. So I would change the diet and recommend supplements at the same time rather than wait to see what impact each one had yeah. um, effectively. Um, and they might need, look, you're, you, you've got such bad gut issues. We've, we've got to help your gut symptoms out. So at least we have some sort of breakthrough. So does that require some sort of gut healing remedy? Is that like uh, IPS capsules, Permavite, the two I've used, or GI Mend, which are products from, from NutriLink? And then I would maybe consider probiotic, which has an anti-inflammatory effect, maybe supports secretory IgA with Saccharomyces boulardii, which Michael Ash put on the map originally. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's the most studied probiotic strain of anything in the world, over and above Lactobacillus GG, which has the most studies of, of any kind of any bacterial strain. So... Espilati um, is a common frequent flyer. So gut line support, avoid the gut. So definitely reduce the major source of inflammation in the body, which is generally from the gut. So you, you do common sense application, but how many clients have you and I met will have an autoimmune condition where they have no particular gut issues at all? Yeah. But they might still have a quiescent gut imbalance. And that, that may in the future require a stool test to give some discernment because the symptoms don't tell you. But generally speaking, I would look to correct their gut symptoms. And sometimes those gut symptoms can come out as brain symptoms as yeah. well. I yeah, think, gut, you know, gut brain. Yeah, because yeah. of that connection. And a lot of people that I've spoken to don't, don't sort of realize that. They're like, they'll sort of say, I'd, I'd be starting to look at the gut and they're like, I don't have gut symptoms. And I'm like, but do you have brain fog? You know, like if you've got these things, let's let's take a look at the gut and just see what's going on. Because uh, absolutely, yes, it seems to be the the, the 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 next thing in line with the with the gut is the furthest thing from it. Well, it's not necessarily your foot, but it's your brain. <laughs> yeah, uh, for sure, the gut brain connection. Obviously, yes, yeah, fascinating. And and actually, you know, in terms of connection, also the nervous system irritation from the gut can also affect the brain, not just the, the chemicals or amine complexes. And um, I remember someone shared with me once upon a time that when conception occurs, there's this process of cell division called mitosis, which I've heard the term mitosis, cell division. One part of the cell forms the spinal cord and brain. What does the other one form? It's the enteric nervous system. So in fact, they came from the, the same original place. And I understand that 80% of the communication is from the gut to the brain and 20% is from the brain to the gut. I don't know. I, I can't necessarily validate that. That's just correct. You can no doubt um, confirm that. <laughs> So it's certainly looking to, to calm that. And, and then many individuals actually have an issue with serotonin with regard to that communication issue. So bloating. One day I'll actually present on serotonin. There's some fan, I mean, it's, there's so much to learn about serotonin um, is that you need enough for the brain, but also plays vital roles in the gut, gut motility yeah. and bloating. And if I had a cure for bloating, I would probably be a millionaire, as they say, um, with a fan base um, of millions, because if you could resolve bloating. But serotonin... Um, is one part of the, of the issue with, with bloating as well. And serotonin can be very important for the brain. So yes, so the gut brain. And then I, in terms of directly addressing the bugs, if I get to that immediately, so how do we with the bugs? I find that a lot of bacteria, most of the bacteria, I would consider the ADP oregano, yeah. which is probably why when I phoned up Biotics in the 1990s, I think it was 1998, uh, Neutralink had started as a partnership in uh, 1997. Um, it, was a, it was a partnership and then we created a limited company in 1998, so, or 1999, so it's 25 years old now. And uh, I phoned Biotics up and I said, can you tell me about your top 10 products, for example, because we're interested in stocking you if that would be possible. And that didn't happen for some years uh, until after that. And uh, the, the medical director of biotics, he said in his very strong Texan accent, he said, ADP. ADP, I don't know what that was. ADP Oregano, I had the catalog. Okay, look that up. ADP. Then he read out nine other products. So the first product that he said was ADP. And it is, it is actually just for your interest. It is curious, but it does reflect the efficacy, I think, not just the popularity. Uh, it's the number one selling product for, for Neutralink, I think, forever. It, it, it is such an effective antimicrobial. It reaches the parts other beers can't reach, and yeah. it's, it's completely unique. No other company makes a fully emulsified 
sustainably solar garner. In fact, the emulsification process they have fully emulsifies their product and no other company in the world fully emulsifies any product. Yeah, it's one I use in clinic and I know it's one that a lot of my um, you know, colleagues that I've come through studying with all use in clinic. Yeah. And, you know. yeah, so, yeah, so you're bumping up the sales. So, but but <laughs> effectively, it's effective. It's effective and it works. And sometimes you need to use a higher amount than you, you think would be, well, I've got five at each meal. It's quite a lot. But, it, you know, it can be, you need the right concentration. So you need what's called the minimum inhibitory concentration, MIC, uh, in order to achieve the effect within the body. So I use ADP for, for the bacterial things, don't really use it for viruses. And for viruses that I have found, and you may have, may not have heard me talk about this, I've talked about this in a variety of different environments, humic acid, mm. uh, the black substance, um, is basically ancient sort of compost that may be 50 to 100,000 years old compost uh, gotten from the, 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 the crust of the earth. And I visited the doctor who creates it, the PhD chemist, flew to Newport Beach, and I went to interview him and he offered me his company for $10 million, which was very generous of him at the time, thinking that I was, I was Mr. Moneybags or something. But um, So he supplied the humic acid to allergy research groups. So that's yeah. how I got the introduction. So he took me out to lunch. I said, like, he's got his home chemistry kit. And he discovered that the, the humic acid that he gets, and he's got humic acid from coal mines all over the world and all different continents. And he finds it in South, Southern California, not far from where he was, effectively Newport Beach, was the most effective humic acid against viruses. So humic acid wow. is like saying, it's like saying pizza. It's like, well, it's, what's your topping? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's like, it's a base. Um, but, the, but the nanoparticulate size of, the, of this particular humic acid from Southern California that allergy research use, and other companies do too. And he supplies 99% of the North American humic acid. Wow. Uh, to the market. That was 10 years ago, more than that. So I flew to Newport Beach, had a meeting with him, hired a car, went to meet him. He's very gracious. He bought me lunch at a nice place and I looked around his chemistry lab and he showed me, and he tests a whole variety of something. He showed me all the substance that, that humic acid's in uh, in the American market. Richard Laub, L-A-U-B, there you go, PhD. He was the head of chemistry at uh, Ohio State and then San Diego Universities before he went out on his own with humic acid and discovered that 99% of the humic acid, and he's the supplier of 99% of the North American humic acid, is a drill bit protector for mining companies. So it seems that when they, they, they drill bits, the drill bits, if they wear down, then they have to replace them. That, that's time-consuming and costly. Yeah. If you put humic acid uh, sort of through a pipe around the drill bit as it's drilling, it greatly preserves its life. Gosh. Who, who knew such a thing? I mean, talk about random. You didn't know this was coming today. And I'm reminded of it now as I speak, but there's a very, it's a very small nanoparticulate matter that prevents the degradation of the diamond drill bits, which means wow. it's a, it saves companies tens of thousands of dollars by, by protecting the drill bits when, they, when they're digging for things. So humic acid I've used, and it basically acts like this. So here we've got a virus and we've got a, a cells here. The virus uh, living in this cell, this cell is going to die in a certain period of time, as all cells do. And it, then it sends out a virion, like an arm, to go next door and penetrate the next door cell and then cell perpetuate and take over the machinations of the cell and carry on living as all these bugs want to carry on living. The humic acid acts like a Velcro so that this virion, this arm that comes out and grabs onto the virion and stops it from migrating to the next door cell. Gosh, so it's amazing how these things are found, isn't it? Yeah, so it's like a Velcro. It's the same way that it protects the drill bit, it protects the cell because it it actually blocks something, yeah. uh, but, but it blocks the, the drill bit from getting damaged. It blocks the virus from migrating. So, the, so humic acid, I happen, um, not coincident, I've, I've actually taken the humic monolaurin complex because monolauric acid from coconut and, and olive leaf extract in the humic monolaurin complex is a trio of things. Although I've used humic acid more in my life, I've taken humic acid, humic monolaurin complex, two and two for the last four years every single day. Really? And, uh, and have I been ill? No. No. 
Um, I had COVID, um, whatever that is. I didn't do a test for it, but I, I, I definitely had COVID. It was a very odd experience in the sense I was just completely wiped. I couldn't walk up the stairs. It was, yeah. boy, at least that allows me to relate to other people who've had the misfortune of being very unwell with it. But I knew I got over it. So I, I, I was okay. I just thought, this is an interesting experience for, for, for about eight, a day and a half. Just literally, just couldn't, I, mean, I couldn't move up the stairs and everything hurt. And it's kind of, I but thought, a day and a half with COVID is pretty good. <laughs> Ten and a half. And, um, you know, and it's, um, and I thought if I was 70 years old and, and or 80 years old and, and frail, I'm not surprised I'd have been, I'd have been out for, for weeks and weeks and not recovering. Then there's long COVID as well, which I, I presented on. But human melanin complex and or humic acid. And I found that often the rotation of them for whatever reason seems to work quite well as opposed to stay on one. Now I, I use kinesiology testing and so I've, I've tested up more recently the, the HMC, humic melanin complex. If I use humic acid, strangely enough, I also find that odd leaf extract, which allergy research actually has stopped producing uh, for now, but I found odd leaf extract with humic acid to be very effective, essentially, in terms of providing an external support to inhibit viruses from within, but also you want to support the innate immune system within. Um, so what will I do for that? Well, there are a number of things that help support Th1, uh, the Th1, which is the intracellular home defense, so dad's army type of uh, you know, as opposed to the, the the antibodies with snipers that will only shoot certain things. And I found that there are, a number of, there are limited numbers of things that help the Th1, and you won't be surprised and you may well know them anyway. I believe that zinc has a role in, in helping that, not surprisingly. And then you've got licorice. Yeah. And of course, you wouldn't take that in the evening time. You wouldn't take it necessarily if you've got high blood pressure. If you took it and someone has a blood pressure issue, you want to make sure you monitor their blood pressure in case you negatively affected them with blood pressure issues because it also increases aldosterone and can deplete potassium and it can raise blood pressure. But it also raises cortisol um, too. So I wouldn't recommend it to someone with high cortisol, but I'd recommend it to someone, of course, most people I meet who are tired might actually have a low cortisol. Although I have to say that that test I've done 3,500 times because sometimes the symptoms of high and low cortisol can be the same as you probably yeah. realize. And you think, oh, clearly you've got low cortisol because you're knackered and you, you know, you're better off lying down than sitting up and you have real difficulty with it, and you discover they've got high cortisol instead of low cortisol. So I found that test is very useful. It, yeah, it's one I use a lot. I think it's, it's difficult to tell, and I think what you it is, isn't it? What you need to do is does vary based on, it is going to make a difference. I think that's how I that's how I explain it to people, is, is you know, dep depending on whether you are high or low, it is going to make a difference. So it's it's good to know. And it's to be fair, that one's not a particularly expensive, in the grand scheme of things, it's not a particularly expensive test compared to the others. So licorice is it can be can be very useful. Um, N-acetylcysteine, yeah. Um, NAC can also help too, and that has an anti direct antiviral effect, which many practitioners don't know. Mm. It does have an an direct antiviral, quite apart from his other wonders. So as, as Rob Verkirk from the Alliance for Natural Health has coined the term, at least I heard it from him first. Nearly all conditions, <laughs> NAC. So it's yeah. just yes, NAC. But what's interesting is that when people don't muscle test up for NAC, and, that, and that's a more complicated conversation in a way. But but NAC, licorice, zinc. I think those, probably those three, perhaps in particular, will be things I would consider for, so not many, not many sort of support. And then there are other herbal things too, potentially one could consider for innate immune support. Now, in order for other immune support, Saccharomyces boulardii and probiotics to help the innate immune system, which helps to bring balance to the Th1, Th2 aspect of health. So, so there are very few things I know of that specifically will raise Th1. Selenium may, have, may be beneficial because that's also an antiviral itself. Um, and selenium and NAC, of course, both precursors to glutathione, which may actually help the overall inflammation control. And then I would be definitely looking, sort of coming back to the gut and helping mucosal immunity, innate immunity, saccharomyces boulardii, and or probiotics. Uh, again, there's a whole world, world of, of probiotics. And it's fascinating because I've been muscle testing those for, for 23 years, now going on 24 years. 
to see which ones are most effective. So it's um, a question of balancing innate immune support and identifying, do they need TH1 upregulation or, or do you need something to temper the antibody response? So to temper the antibody response to go to the next bit, quercetin can be useful to, to inhibit interleukins and, and histamine, which, can, which is more of a factor in long COVID. And also luteolin. Now, the Allaid L92 product from Allergy Research uh, was created by uh, Todd Bourne, naturopath who used to work with Allergy Research. And he, he basically called it quercetin on steroids um, as a joke. I, I don't think it really is. But luteolin and this probiotic of L-lactobacillus L92, which has been shown to reduce allergy. Um, for some individuals who've got this an inflammatory response, how, much, how do you know the symptoms are due to the virus or the immune response to it? Or the, and, you know, it's difficult to know. So the Allaid L92 is probably the single most effective anti-allergic symptom supplement I've used, which I, I used to use quercetin. And now sometimes I use one and the other, one and the other to find out. So I don't know which one's going to be most effective um, if you haven't muscle tested. If I muscle test, sometimes it rotates anyway. Allaray L92, reducing the sort of allergic activity. So it helps to reduce the antibody production, which can be very useful. So that can be like akin to putting a fire out, if you will. Yeah. And then that allows the immune system to work better. And that actually ends up helping Th1 support. So the beauty is that um, it's unlikely that anybody will do harm with nutritional therapy. I just find a lot of people could waste their money on, on yeah. things they don't need. And that's why I think the muscle testing is so useful. I also have a resistance to, to lots and lots and lots of supplements, even though I might recommend lots and lots of supplements. But I liken it to, I don't know if you've ever done in your, in when you were healthier or when you now, you tie a thick rubber band around your waist that's attached to the gym wall and you run away yeah. from the wall. And the further away from the wall you get, the greater resistance is to bring you back. And often you, hit, you need a mat because then you spring back on, the, on, on your bottom. And I'm like that with supplements is that the further, the more I recommend, the less I, I want there to be so many. At the same time, some clients categorically need a lot of support. Yeah. With the um, diet side of things, I know, cause I know you sort of mentioned there are quite a lot of things that we take out of the diet, which, you know, we have to do. But, is this something I need to do for life? And I know there's probably an element of, you know, yeah. gluten and things like that. We maybe are a slightly different picture, but... Yeah, gluten, yes. Taking things out, is it something that you keep people on very restrictive? Yeah, or? I'm so sorry I didn't create balance there because otherwise it sounds like a typical nutritionist saying exclude, exclude, exclude. Now I'm left with, no, oh, look, I'm intermittent fasting a lot. And so this is where I, I guess I introduced uh, maybe a hero of yours, Terry Walls, who I've had the pleasure of meeting a few times. And had nice conversations with her, and I've challenged her. I'll tell you about the conversation in a minute. And I've also, you know, danced with her and her partner at the IFM dance events as well. So, so because she can dance now, she's not out of a wheelchair, as you know. So she, yeah. she, her legacy for humanity's health is, is extraordinary. So all hail her, no doubt about it. And she recommends cups because it's American-sized cups yeah. of vegetables. So, so I'd recommend more vegetables. Generally, I have to say it's cooked vegetables, not raw, because I find a lot of people can't tolerate, uh, particularly in wintertime. Uh, so it's basically lots and lots of veggies, and of course, the, the cruciferous vegetables, the brassicas, but cooked, cooked veggies. And a lot of people can't tolerate too much of them if they've got gut issues either, because they get more wind. So cooked vegetables, more of those, I think, and also more starchy carbohydrates instead of the grains. So, and, and also a greater variety of proteins. So I would actually identify what, what are you a omnivore? Are you are you fishitarian, chickitarian? You know what kind of vegetarian are you? If you are, and I generally find it much more useful if someone's an omnivore and they eat a variety of proteins because uh, you know organic, organically reared, you know pasture fed, 
proteins hugely important. And hence, the extension of that will be ultimately the carnivore diet, which there are stories, many stories. Uh, but again, it's a question of how, what percentage of the audience are they. And if you've got a great story, it doesn't mean to say that someone who had, I had a Mediterranean diet and I did really well. And that's not necessarily so spoken about in terms of what immunity is. But so I had a carnivore diet, I had no veggies, I, you know, nothing. I just had meat and fish and that was all I had and I got better. And really reflecting, you know, a certain percentage, I think, of the autoimmune audience that could benefit from such a thing. So, so I, rec- I certainly recommend the proteins and particularly protein at breakfast and really stabilizing blood sugar. Um, and then the good fats. And you may be aware of Ray Frank's work. I was familiar with his work from 1990. And so, you know, very low fat diet. And for certain individuals, a very low fat diet, it could be, and it has been shown, Ray Frank was a very good doctor. Um, and he did find that a very low fat diet, even though it may be frowned on nowadays, so well, we need we need, we do good fats, the avocado, the butter, and the, the coconut oil, etc. But cer- certainly with MS, race rank, you know, concentrate on that with low fat. So if you're going to have low low grains and low carbs and low fat, well, that's going to be more carnivore anyway. So each individual will vary, and I think body type can also give a reflection of that too. So the uh, whether it's um, Biotyping, which um, Alex Freshy teaches, or whether it's uh, the, the mesomorph, ectomorph, endomorph type things, you know, way of viewing the body, I think you can you can get a sense of certain type body types will do better on certain types, and that's probably a day for another conversation, which I'm not so familiar with to be able to. I wouldn't be the one to talk about with that, but it'd be again fascinating to see. And then there's Ayurvedic medicine, so it'd be Vata Pitta Kapha, which you do questionnaires and give you a sense of what you're dominant in can be useful too. There are actually 1,200 different modalities of assessing where someone's at and their health, by the way. <laughs> 1,200. The, obviously, the, the ancient Ayurvedic ones and so on are, are, are very old. And the Chinese approach, the sort of the five elements is an acupuncture and traditional Chinese medicine are, are very old. But there are 1,200 different modalities from eat, eat right up your type, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So I would sort of, I aim, that's why I find muscle testing so useful because it cuts through all of that and identifies what the person in front of me needs as opposed to me trying to figure out which, which particular modality or approach is going to be best for them. But generally speaking, you're right. Grains and I've actually, there are 16 negatives for wheat minimum, including the pesticides and glyphosate. Yeah. And that's a whole other conversation, is it, around all of that sort of side of things and, you know, and organic foods and all of that. And and, and that is so different to what are a bit, a bit, like, the, a bit like your grandfather with the stress foods that we eat today compared to the foods that he would have eaten growing up and the sort of pesticides and all of this. I mean, that's a whole other picture as well, isn't it? Yes. Can you can imagine in 1920 when he was 15 and he had a meat and two veg, let's say, meat and two veg and potatoes, let's say, meat and two veg and potatoes, and you assess nutritional status and the toxins in that meal compared to an identical photographic image of me eating it when I was 15 mm. in 1980, which is when I first got into nutrition uh, consciously, completely different nourishment level. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think people use the word clean. I, I've actually never used the word clean with a client, and I probably won't ever do that. But eating clean, do you really wash your food before you eat it? <laughs> yeah, it's, I try and avoid it as well. Yeah, it's, it's for me. It's a sort of it's a sort of biohacker's term, and it's sort of it's sort of like, well, what do you mean by clean? It's so it's really looking to avoid the things that are going to cause inflammation and immune reactivity, and also not not high on levels of toxins and pesticides. But so I think the world's a big place. Internet's a big place, and you've got celebrities doing various things. But essentially, you know, whole fresh food, no ultra-processed food and, and no refined sugar. Yeah, I recommend liver as well, organic liver if you can get it. Super, super, super good. And it's not, it's not, it's actually really a source of copper um, over and above iron. I'm not sure if you're aware of the, the, the metabolism of copper and iron. I'm giving a webinar on that in April <laughs> if, you, if, you haven't, if, you, if you haven't heard the story on that one. But because that has a big influence to do with oxidative stress and inflammation. Yeah. Uh, if you've got a poor management of iron, you've got more inflammation present. 
And a lot of people think, well, if you can red meat, you've you got lots of iron, so maybe I don't want too much iron in my body for good reason. Well, actually, liver, for example, has more copper relatively, and copper regulates um, the iron in liver. And also, vitamin A is a very important thing that's often lacking in the diet nowadays. Yeah, that's another one, yeah. <sighs> yeah, so much to say, so much to talk about. But, but essentially, yes, it's really on the face of it. You had a photograph of someone's diet, or you, you saw a couple of days' food on a, on a trestle table. Basically, it's just, it's really wholesome, nourishing, completely recognizable food. Yeah. And there may not be and no gluten in sight, maybe no grains in sight, but it's just it's completely nourishing. And nuts and seeds may play a part in that as well. So it's just an, an healthy oil. So really, it's a really healthy spread. So I guess you could say it's more Mediterranean style. But what, what's often left out of the Mediterranean story is that the, the, generally speaking, the people who are eating the meal have been physically active in the morning and the afternoon yeah. all day long. And they also take maybe two hours in a social environment in the sunshine <laughs> eating the meal. So yeah. there's quite a lot going on, not just the food alone with, yeah. with the Mediterranean approach. And it's a bit that sort of blue zone thing, isn't it? Of the sort of mm. commu- having community, having purpose, you know, all of these sort of things that that play into it as well. It's it's not just it's not just diet. Yes, and maybe maybe, maybe the the Harahachi Boo, which Dan Bootner talks about as well. I read that book years ago. I actually saw the Netflix series as well because he's quite a lot of them, and I remembered him in the book. And he doesn't move quite as nimbly as I thought he might do nowadays. But the Harahachi Boo, which means you're basically eating eighty percent of what you need and pushing away and leaving the table when you're not full. Yeah. Because the, the greatest, Mark Houston, the professor of uh, hypertension at Tennessee, you might know of him, brilliant biochemist, uh, he says that every single individual has inf- um, a leaky gut to some degree after eating every meal. And uh, most inflammation in your body is derived from the food you've eaten, i.e. a meal, and therefore large meals are bad for anyone. So if you had the Mediterranean diet and you ate too much, you'd still cause inflammation. Yeah. So um, there is that. So it's about balance with lots of things. Yeah, and that's, that's definitely something I experienced particularly when I was sort of really going through it, was I, I couldn't eat big meals at all. Oh, I, I could eat like five small meals a day, like almost five snacks, almost sort of much smaller meals, but I could not eat a big meal. If I ate a big meal, mm. my symptoms flared up. And well, well, well uh, that, that highlights it perfectly, doesn't it? Yeah, and that was yeah. a real problem. It was, it, when I say it was a real problem, it was really hard when you were going out for like dinner or you know, trying to do things like, you know, try and be practically cool and speaking, like, yes. and and things. I would go out for dinners and order a starter. But I would, I'd still be mm. eating. I just had to do like sort of smaller meals through the day and eat more often. And that really flared my symptoms up. So that was a big one for me was that I, I couldn't tolerate the, the big, heavy sort of big meal. I mean, I, I can now, but I've done a lot of work on my health since then. But, mm. but going yeah. back, that was, that was one that was a, real, was a real problem for me. And I think can be a real problem for, for a lot of people. It, it is, it's this picture of, of putting everything together there's so much that we could talk about. So, yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, so host terrain, host is everything, you know, the, the host terrain, and that's still hugely relevant. And I think that's what's gone down for one reason or another, to summarize your original question, which is why do you think autoimmune conditions are on the increase? Because host terrain immunity is diminished. Yeah. And so it's got to do with malnourishment, excess stress, excess toxins, uh, rush, 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 so that we, we switched off immunity. Uh, then, so it's not so much the bug's fault. It's not the bug suddenly becoming, you know, bad. And it's just that our immune system becomes less capable of handling it. So it's all to the immune system, which wasn't really focused on at all. Well, in fact, it wasn't focused on at all deliberately in COVID. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you strengthen your own, your own innate immune system? Yeah, I think it's a reflection of modern society. And, uh, but the good news is, and you're a living example of it. So that's congratulations to you. of just uh, really taking all the steps possible. So, you know, sleep hygiene, huge fan of that. Yeah. It's, um, but it's effectively bugs. So the, the bugs have made the difference where I've had clients who don't have MS anymore, who don't have RA anymore. And it's because, and they don't have sarcoidosis anymore, which is a 
that was an interesting result. I had no idea what was going to happen there. Don't see many clients with that. Um, and they needed vitamin D, even though they said don't take vitamin D because mm-hmm. we did a test and they said, so don't take vitamin D if you've got psychosis because they don't handle it properly. Well, he needed vitamin D. I'm trying to think of other, other cases. Psoriasis, if I can't, you don't have that anymore. But again, I find that challenging with people who would be, be can't, I don't make much progress. Uh, everyone varies. There's this sort of, there is a continuum, but I've had clients who don't have these conditions anymore because we address the bug. Yeah. So I rest my case in a balloon debate if it was such a thing, to say that I do believe that bug present, the infectious agent, which you've chosen to talk to me about today, is a super relevant one. Yeah, yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. Thank you so much for sharing your wealth of knowledge today and joining us on the podcast. I know the listeners are going to find this episode really, really interesting. And it's, it's been really, really fascinating to talk to you. I, I hope so. I know, I know it's, a, it's a long one. People, yes, people, not, if anyone listens to it in a stretch, then, then good for you. <laughs> Nicole, thank you so much for having me on. And I hope that I, I just, if it benefits one person, that's fantastic. If it benefits more, that's all the better. And I wish you well with yours. Congratulations on being at the forefront uh, for your own health and then be able to share that with others. Thank you. And thank you. Thank you for your time today as well. Okay, very welcome. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Good Health Podcast. Do share the episode with anyone who you think it may benefit or who may enjoy it. And help me spread the word by rating the episode or leaving a review. If you want more, you can find other episodes in the series on your podcast app or sign up to my free newsletter. Not only will you get information on new episodes launching, but we cover lots of health topics with the Ask Nicole section where you can send in your questions, my favorite recipes, my favorite products, tips and tricks to help you on the road to good health and much more. You can sign up free of charge at nicolegoodhealth.com forward slash newsletter, also linked below. I hope you have a lovely week. Don't forget to hit subscribe and I'll see you next time.